The reading today is taken from Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by saying, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're back in our journey series, Psalms of Ascents, uh, runs from Psalm 120 to 134. Uh, the people of Israel would sing these songs together as they were journeying up for the three annual feasts. And we've said that the theme uh, psalm of this journey series is Psalm 121, where the psalmist says, I look to the mountains, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who makes heaven and earth. And eventually, as you journey with the Lord and as Israel would have journeyed with the Lord, what you find as you are walking with the Lord is the Lord wants to meet you and does meet us in the deep places of our souls, in the places, in this case, of our oppression that we face in life. What is oppression? What is oppression? Oppression comes from the Hebrew word sarar in the scriptures, which is translated as oppressed, attacked, persecuted, or afflicted. Okay, oppression, to use a word picture for you, it's a force that presses us or pressures us so far down, it cramps us into such a knot that we feel too constrained to exercise who God has made us to be in his image, to exercise our God-given rights and effectiveness. And often this oppression, as the psalmist points out, it often begins when we are young, when we are young. And so today, in order to really fully enter into what the psalmist is going to walk us through, from oppression to freedom, you're going to need to be vulnerable. You're going to need to be honest in your own heart, before the Lord, about some things that are uncomfortable in your heart, things that you might not want to think about this morning, things you did not plan on thinking about this morning, but God, in his kindness, wrote this psalm for us so that we would have scriptures like this to help us find freedom in Christ from these deep places in our lives. Oppression can take many forms. In order to kind of point this out for you, I'm going to tell a story, okay? This story um, is not about any of you. It's not about my family. This story is about a family of seven. Uh, this family is not local. You don't know them. Um, but this is a story of a family. Now, oppression can take many forms. Um, as Drew prayed about, it 
Oppression can look various ways. Um, the statistics show that many of us have been abused in some way, physically, emotionally, sexually. Abuse can take those forms. Some of us grew up believing things were our fault, and they weren't. And we lived in that lie for a long, long time, and it formed us in a lot of ways, living in that lie until we hopefully finding freedom in Christ. And in this family of seven, the form of oppression that they endured was religious legalism. Religious legalism. The legalism in this family affected every area of their kids' lives. From what you can wear, you better look good for Jesus, all right? What you can listen to, only some Christian music, but all classical music is okay. Uh, How often you are at church, a lot. Uh, Which Christian leaders you can trust, only a holy handful of approved people. When you can date, the answer is never, but you can court following the Joshua Harris I Kiss Dating Goodbye model. Their lives, these seven, was in a word oppressive. Discipline was swift and harsh. The guilt was thick. The pressure was abnormal. But the thing about oppression in your youth is that you're not mature enough yet to even know that it's oppression. So you grow up thinking that it's normal. And that's what's so dangerous about oppression in our youth is before we have time to even grow and deal with it, we're already being affected by it. That's why it's so evil. To some degree, all of us experience oppression in our youth. None of us are immune from this. And until we understand and embrace the gospel, we all have ways of pursuing happiness, of of finding freedom of responding to this. How did these five kids in this family of seven respond to their oppression? Well, one turned to substance abuse. Another turned to cult worship. Those rules are not strong enough for me. I'm going to find different rules that are even more stringent. Another turned to sexual addiction. There's no room to talk about that in my family, that's for sure. Another to perfectionism. I'll show you what it's like to be successful. And still another to peacemaking. This child had the poor job of feeling like it was their responsibility to help all of these people get along with each other. Good luck. Good luck with that. So how do you respond to your oppression? How have you responded? I'm not talking about your movie. I understand. We're going to talk about going to the gospel. We'll talk about that. But we all have other ways we respond to our oppression if we're not living in the freedom of Christ. For me, I am a perfectionist. I want to prove to the world that I can do it so that they will accept me and leave me alone. Okay, that's how I deal with it. I wonder how you deal with the oppression that you've faced in your life. So today we're going to talk about the oppression that begins in our youth. Then we're going to show how Christ cuts the cords of oppression. How does Jesus free us from our oppression? And then finally, we'll observe how the psalmist, as he or she is freed by the gospel, we don't know who wrote this, as they're freed by the gospel, then align themselves with this God who has brought them into freedom. 
Okay, we're going to talk about the oppression, how Christ frees us, and then aligning ourselves with Yahweh who has brought us freedom. So oppression begins in our youth. We see this in verse 1, the beginning of verse 2, and also in verse 3. He starts out, Greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, all of us, let us all say, greatly they have afflicted me from my youth. So when the Bible repeats something, it's like bolding it, italicizing it, underlining it. This is the way of the psalmist saying, this is what this psalm is about. It's about oppression and how God meets us in that place. I wonder what your story of oppression is. We all have one. If you're an adult, it can be very uncomfortable. I mean, we will literally do anything but think about those events in our lives or those people in our lives that have brought us oppression. But what it's like is it's like everybody, when they're born, is given a black bag. It's invisible. No one can see it. But there's, you're dragging it around, and when you're young, it's a small little bag, all right? No one can see it. It's a bag you drag around. By the time you get into your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, if you haven't stopped yet to open up the bag, take some things out of the bag, the bag becomes enormous. It becomes so oppressive to have the bag that you're dragging around that you realize this bag of stuff in my life is killing me, and so you seek help, or you move in even farther in those negative directions that we can go in. Or you may be a student today, and so you're young, and so Again, you're, you're, a, you're in your youth, and you're not really able to think about what is happening to me right now. You're just living life. But I want you to know, if you are being abused and you're young here today, please tell somebody about that. Please do that. Okay, you don't have to live with that. That's not your fault. You don't have to live in that world. Okay? If that's what's going on. Maybe you're being bullied. This is a big problem today. could be at school. It could be online, it could be whatever. I don't know what's going on with you. It could be on social media. You need to talk to somebody about it. You need to find freedom. Please talk to me or Drew or Andy, your parents, a community group leader, anyone who can help you. But it feels like this. Verse 3 is what it feels like. It says, the plowers plowed upon my back. They made their long furrows. So the plowman is an agricultural analogy. Obviously, the plowmen are using their ox and they're plowing on your back. And that's what it feels like to be oppressed. It's like somebody is digging into your flesh and you feel it viscerally. That's how we experience it. Charles Spurgeon said this, Those who laid on the scourge did it with a thoughtfulness which showed how hearty was their hate. There is no busier plowman in the world than the devil. He and his children plow like practice plowmen, but they prefer to carry on their pernicious work upon the saints behind their backs, for they are as cowardly as they are cruel. It's cowardly. Satan is a coward to oppress us in our youth, to dig into our backs before we even have a chance to know what is happening to us. Sometimes this thorough, hateful work occurs in our families or in our schools, and sometimes it happens through social systems that are beyond our control. Tim Keller says this, 
The psalmist talks about slaves with backs scarred by whips who are liberated by God. That's what this psalm is written from the perspective of a freed slave. Israel, who was freed from their, their persecutors, the psalmist is writing in reflection upon that. And to my knowledge, none of us in this room have been slaves. We still live in a society today that is scarred by the rancor of slavery. You may not think so, but this week I was reading a poll on Dr. King weekend that said only 15% of African Americans believe their children have a good chance of growing up and being successful in America. 15%. Those same people say that 77% of white children growing up in America have a good chance of being successful. Now, if you're surprised by this poll's data, you're probably not African American. Okay? This, there is no poll that has a margin of error that is so great to make this untrue. Okay, this is how... African Americans feel growing up or living in America today. What could you do to better understand how your African Americans' brothers and sisters, fellow citizens feel? Well, you could educate yourself by reading books, watching videos that you might not normally watch. One book you could read is by an incredible author, Just Mercy, Brian Stevenson. I would highly recommend it. He's a believer. And uh, he's now at work in Alabama uh, trying to free death row inmates. There's a movie out right now uh, that is, has got great ratings. You could go see it if you don't feel like reading the book. It is an excellent book. I've actually, after I get back from Malaysia, I'm going to Malaysia next week. I would love to see it with some of you and actually talk about it. But the point is we need to understand that injustice toward the poor, toward people of color, toward women affects our our society and because it affects our society it affects individual people who are made in the image of God the difficult thing about injustice like this if injustice happens because of your family of origin or because of your school or friend group you can identify that as painful as it is you can at least say this is who did this to me so I can I I know at least how I can deal with this, or I have a chance. When it happens through social systems, it feels so far out, so far beyond your control, so hard to trace, it's difficult to know how do you, how do you live with that? How do you grow through that? Very difficult. How have the plowmen plowed upon your back? Where are the wounds in your life? Where are those places in your story where you've faced oppression. How have you responded to it? We went through a few options of these children in the story earlier. There are other possible responses. Um, A few uh, other popular ones would be laziness or irresponsibility. Well, this has happened to me, so my life is, it's not worth trying. Or the opposite, over control. I don't trust anyone I'm going to control everything I possibly can so I'll never be hurt again. So owning your story of oppression, whether you're a child or an adult, is very important. It's God's plan for you to move you from oppression to freedom. How do I know this? This is the story of Scripture. 
This is the story of the people of God. The whole story of Israel is wrapped up in the words of Psalm 129. Israel's story is a story of moving from oppression to freedom. Hosea 11.1 says, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. God loved Israel as a nation. He loved his people as a people when they were a, a child, a young nation who was experiencing the injustice of slavery. And God called them out of that. James Boyce says this about the Jews. The Jews are the longest enduring, distinct ethnic people on the planet. They have been slandered, hated, persecuted, expelled, pursued, and murdered throughout their long existence. But they have survived intact. Derek Kidner said, Whereas most nations tend to look back on what they have achieved... Israel reflects on what she has survived. Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, became skeptical about Christianity. He had been influenced by Voltaire, the famous French skeptic. And the king challenged his chaplain about the truth of the Bible. He said, if your Bible is true, it ought to be capable of very brief proof. Forget long arguments. Give me the proof of the Bible's inspiration in a word. And the chaplain answered, Israel. Israel. And Frederick, as the story goes, went silent. Based on your life story, where is an example of survival being a crowning achievement? Where have you survived something that has happened to you. And it's because of God's work in your life. I was looking the other day at the Ebenezer's in our office, these rocks that you wrote on, and one person wrote, grateful survivor. Grateful survivor. What have you survived because of Jesus? Because of God's mercy on you? Well, can you look back on your life and say, the only way I got through that is because of Christ? Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's abuse of some kind. Maybe it's religious legalism. Maybe you've gotten through this semester in school and, and you thought you were going to die because of all the work that you were under. It's God's mercy to us to bring us through these moments in our lives. And we need to celebrate God's work. Celebrate that we survived. But God goes beyond that. Christ cuts the cords of oppression. And we see this at the end of verse 2 and in verse 4. So that's the history of physical Israel, survival. What is the history of spiritual Israel? So from the beginning of creation, humanity has been under siege. We were created and our first parents, no sooner they had been created and given a call, Satan comes into the picture and brings his attack. And they sin. And they fall into slavery to sin. It seems like almost immediately by Genesis chapter 3, the rest of human history has lived with this backdrop. Satan has come to destroy the image of God. Jesus tells us in John 10.10 10, that Satan has come to steal and kill and destroy. 
John 8, 44, Jesus says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. How does Satan do his oppressing work? One of his main tactics is through lies. When you're young and things happen to you, you try to understand them. And Satan attacks you and gives you thoughts about yourself and about the world. Many of those thoughts are untrue. He is the father of lies. The father of lies. And Jesus, one of the main works that he does is he comes and he gives us truth. Grace and truth that breaks the lie and gives us freedom to live a new life. Satan would love for you today to believe, for every one of you to believe that the gospel is generally true for others. It's generally true for others, but it's not true for you. It's not true for you. It does not break the cords of your oppression. Christ's work is not sufficient to free you from those memories, from those things that have been done to you. Satan would love for you to believe the gospel is generally true, but not specifically true. But of course, the gospel is specifically true for you and for me. Standing behind all the sin that's been done to you is Satan seeking to destroy God's image. The good news of the gospel is found in verse 2. It's one of the key phrases in the psalm. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. These things that have happened to you have not prevailed against you. How is that possible? How is it possible that things like this have been done to you in your youth and they wouldn't ultimately affect the outcome of your life? How is that possible? Think about IJM. You guys have just generously given $9,000 that we would free women from their oppressors in Uganda. How is it that they can be made free? They're so vulnerable. How is it possible? Well, they can't achieve freedom on their own. They are powerless. But there is one who is more powerful than they are, and they are coming in to free them now from the injustice that they are facing. It's the same for us. We are not powerful enough. We are young when we were oppressed. Even now we're not powerful enough to free ourselves. But Christ has come. Christ has come for us. He has come to set us free. He has come to cut the cords of the wicked, as it says in verse 4. The Lord is righteous, and he has cut the cords of the wicked. If you go back with me to the imagery of the plowman in the field, the plow is attached to the oxen by the cords, and here you have this vivid imagery of Christ coming in and severing the cord, cutting the cord so the plowing can no longer happen. The plowmen are not free to plow upon you any longer because Christ has come. John Calvin says this, it is a point worthy of special notice that the welfare of the church is inseparably connected with the righteousness of God. Okay, make no mistake, Jesus is angry. You don't like to think about Jesus that way? 
Jesus is angry that you went through that. And it's his righteous anger that drove him to the cross so that through his blood, he would be able to take out a knife and sever that cord that has tied you to that oppression that you experienced when you were young, or maybe you're experiencing it right now. Psalm 103, 6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. But how does Christ do it? How does he do it? He cuts the cords of the wicked by becoming oppressed for us. He became oppressed like no other person has ever been oppressed. He who knew no sin, what happened? He took on oppression for us. Beginning at the very start of his life, there was an oppressor, Herod, who sought to kill Jesus. So like the nation of Israel, Jesus went down to Egypt. So the words of Hosea 11.1 could be true about Jesus as well. Out of Egypt I called my son. Israel went down because there was a famine. Jesus went down as a refugee to escape persecution. God called him out of Egypt. When Christ began his earthly ministry, no sooner than he had been baptized was he in the desert being tempted by Satan himself for 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus went through the spiritual oppression of the desert. And for the rest of his ministry, Satan would be standing behind every one of Jesus' oppressors, seeking to murder Jesus. Eventually, it seemed his oppressors got the best of Jesus. They cornered him. They arrested him. They tried him. They beat him. They mocked him. They flogged him. They carried him to the cross. The cross was carried for Jesus to the cross. Christ got upon the cross for us and was murdered by these oppressors for you and for me. They came to him with swords and clubs. They came to him with swords and clubs, it says in Matthew 26, 47. And they flogged him, making furrows on his innocent back. Christ gave himself to his oppressors so that the furrows on his back would purchase our freedom. By his stripes, we are healed. Therefore, there is no power in the oppression that we face because Christ has all the power. What happened after that? He was raised from the dead, declaring to the world that there is no oppression for he or for his people who are united with him that can bind them to that oppression any longer. Spiritually, the cords have been broken because we are united to Christ. Christ suffering as a servant for us, the flow of his blood on the cross that day paid for our sin, but it did even more. It released us from the bondage that we had to sin and Satan so that now we have a new master. Eugene Peterson says this, Christian discipleship is a process of paying more and more attention to God's righteousness and less and less attention to our own, finding the meaning of our lives not by our probing moods, motives, and morals, but by believing in God's will and purposes, making a map of the faithfulness of God not charting the rise and fall of our own enthusiasms, 
So now we've got to go back and we've got to, our life, how do we live in Christian discipleship? We believe the gospel, we remember that this is true. When those memories come, when those moments come, when those lies come in, we go back and we believe the gospel, that the story of our life, that the true story is the story of Christ freeing us. That is the story. The story is in verse 2, but they have not gained the victory over me. The story is in verse 4, he has cut the cords of the wicked. So that now Psalm eighteen nineteen is true. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. So that now we, you and I, are in a broad place. We are in a free place. When you feel like you are being crushed by the weight of oppression, the gospel says you are in a free place, a free place of grace in Christ. What does that freedom look like for you where the wicked reign no more? Can you name specific ways you have been freed from your oppression in your life? Now, for me, in my story, uh, part of my story is that I didn't feel like I had a family. I grew up in a, a Pentecostal legalistic family where there was no room for weakness. There was no room for admitting that you were struggling or that you were, God forbid, depressed and you couldn't bring it all together. In fact, uh, when I once broke up with my girlfriend in college, I've told you that part of the story. Another part of the story is how my parents responded to that is they called in an exorcist. They called in an exorcist who was a friend of the family to cast demons out of me because I was struggling. So what does someone learn from that? Well, I'll do anything but struggle in front of my family ever again. I will never do that. I don't want Pastor Exorcist Joe to come over. Different Joe, obviously, right? I mean, uh, we, don't want, we don't want this guy to come over. And so you learn, I will not be vulnerable. I will not be vulnerable. So how has Christ changed that dynamic? I know in Christ, I am free to be vulnerable. I am free to be honest about how I'm really doing. Why? Because God can handle it. Even if my family couldn't handle it, God can handle it. And that was 25 years ago. Uh, honestly, you know, God changes things. God is at work in my family, okay? For many years, I said I will not be vulnerable again. But I had a conversation with my dad two weeks ago, the best conversation I've ever had with him, about anxiety. He's experiencing some. And... We're journeying together in what it looks like to have freedom in Christ. It took 25 years to have a conversation like that. The gospel is dynamic. It is not static. Sometimes God changes people. Sometimes God changes uh, the people that hurt you. And so you have to be open to that when you're walking with Jesus. Aligning ourselves with the God of freedom. How do we do this? After you're free, how do you live your life? Well, verses five through eight are the, an example of an imprecatory psalm. Okay, these are those psalms where a, a Christian, a, someone who is praying or singing, calls down 
curses on their enemies. These are very controversial psalms. There are some people that would say, you shouldn't pray these anymore. Skip over these psalms. They're, they're obsolete now. Why? Because Jesus has come and he has said, you should pray for those who persecute you. You should bless your enemies. And so that means this is something that's old news. We don't need to have anything to do with it anymore. I want to talk about that with you this morning. What do we do with the imprecatory psalms? Well, the imprecatory psalms are prayers. They're prayers. And when you pray, prayer is communicating. And when you pray to someone or you communicate with somebody who loves you like God does, that means you're in a place of freedom. You are in a place of freedom. And that means you can pray whatever is on your heart. If you're being oppressed, you better believe you can pray about that. You better pray about that. I mean, it's the main thing going on in your life or one of them. You can take all of those raw emotions to God. You know what? God is big and he is sovereign and he is good and he's able to listen to you and he can answer whatever prayers he wants that you pray. Sometimes he just listens and sometimes he acts upon your prayers. Let's go back to my story. Um, I don't think about that moment that often with the exorcist at my house. But when I do, I do not pray favorable prayers for this man. I pray that God would limit his ministry, that other people won't uh, be brought underneath the, uh, the, the wackiness of this guy. I do believe that there are real needs for exorcisms in this world. I do. I did not need an exorcism that day, though. Okay? So there's a lot of people that could be negatively, have been negatively affected by him and people like him. And so I pray that God will limit his ministry. He will not bless his ministry. I pray that God will call him to repent. If he's not a believer, that he'll become a Christian. If he is, then he'll be brought into the truth. Okay? That is an example of an imprecatory prayer. Let's look at what's prayed here. For all the fuss about it, it's really not that bad of a prayer to pray. What does verse 5 say? Basically, no honor for my oppressors. No honor for them. Do not honor them. Let them be ashamed for what they have done. What he's talking about here is military victory. Don't let these people expand their wicked influence in the world, God. No honor for these people. Why would we not pray that prayer? Shouldn't we seek the defeat of those who would want to assail the righteous? Shouldn't we pray against them? Of course we should. What's the next part of the prayer? No success, verses 6 and 7. It's this imagery of the grass growing on a rooftop in the ancient Near East. It's very difficult to grow grass anyway. You put it on a rooftop, it's not going to grow. So what he's saying is that these people are utterly destined to failure so go ahead and bring the failure on them now. No success for the wicked, God. Don't bring them success. Bring them failure. And finally, verse 8, no blessing. Don't bless them. These words that are used in verse 8 are words that the people of God would use. Back in Ruth, when Boaz would go out to bless the people in his fields, he would, he would use these words, the peace of God be upon you. Perhaps the people, the enemies, were appropriating these words for themselves. I don't know. 
But whatever the case, what he's saying is, don't bless them, God, like you've promised to bless your people. Don't bring blessing upon them. A Christianity without the thwarting of oppressors isn't Christianity. You realize that? A Christianity without justice for the wicked isn't Christianity. It's some other milquetoast philosophy that you can buy a book about in Barnes and Noble. Here's another quote from Spurgeon. If this be an imprecation, let it stand, for our heart says amen to it. It is but justice that those who hate, harass, and hurt the good should be brought to naught. How can we wish prosperity to those who would destroy that which is dearest to our hearts? This present age is so flippant that if a man loves the Savior, he is styled a fanatic. And if he hates the powers of evil, he is named a bigot. Study a chapter in the Fox's Book of Martyrs and see if you do not feel inclined to read an imprecatory psalm over Bishop Bonner and Bloody Mary. It may be some wretched 19th century sentimentalist will blame you. If so, read another over him. I love that. Sure, there's people out there that say Christianity doesn't have justice for the wicked. You don't want to have anything to do with those people. Read somebody else. Because there is a day coming when all the wrongs will be set right. Particularly for those who persecute the people of God. There's a day coming if they will not repent. So why is this pattern of oppression and suffering so necessary? It's a pattern observed in Israel it's a pattern observed in Christ. It's a pattern observed in the church. I think one of the best answers to that question, why does God allow it, is that we are like jars of clay. God allows us to experience this incredible pressure, this incredible difficulty in life, to show that the power that is at work in us, bringing us from oppression to freedom, is not from us, but it is from God. There's a battle cry composed in Latin, and it's placed next to the burning bush. In Latin, it reads, Nec ramen consumbatur. Nec ramen consumbatur. And it means, yet not consumed. Yet not consumed. We are hard-pressed on every side. Anyone that looks at Israel, the history of them, the, the people, the, the ethnic people, Anyone who looks at Christ and what he went through, anyone that looks at the church and can say, those people, they are doing it all on their own. It's, it's just not the story. It's not the story of Christianity. It is about a power at work in us and through us that we are yet not consumed. Though we are going through so much that we are broken, we are not shattered. That we are hard-pressed on every side we still are not consumed. And oftentimes, as Beth Moore puts it, the long furrows can become the most fertile places for God to plant his gospel seed. All of the attacks of our oppressors backfire on them. You'll find that as God works in your life and as he heals you and brings you into freedom, that you have a unique gateway into other people's lives who have also experienced that same kind of oppression. What Satan meant for evil, God intends for good, and God will produce 
good fruit, although it is painful, in those places where Satan meant for evil. I'll close with this. As we are freed by grace and experience freedom in Christ, we'll find that at least three things begin to happen, okay? We'll find ourselves turning less and less to those other places in our life that those five kids started turning, or maybe some other places that we've highlighted. Instead of turning toward uh, addiction, substance abuse, sexual addiction, instead of turning towards perfectionism or feeling like we have to make peace with everyone or laziness or controlling everything, we will find ourselves turning less and less in those places and more and more we will find ourselves turning to Jesus, our Savior, who has freed us by his blood. And we will want to align ourselves with him, the God who has freed us. And the amazing thing is you'll find yourself less focused, less self-focused and focused on your journey from oppression to freedom and more able to focus on helping other people experience that journey that you have been on. That may involve discipling someone. It may involve coming alongside them and and going down into those details of their life and assuring them of the gospel. Salvation is not found in vulnerability. Vulnerability is a moment, it's an opportunity for the gospel to come in and free and transform. And you might be the one who's called to be there as a discipler. Or, and, you may be called to work this out in the realm of social justice. You look around and you go, wait, this freedom that I'm experiencing from my oppressors is something that people are experiencing today in various ways. And so I want to be a part of making sure that other people literally physically experience what I've experienced spiritually in my life. And so you'll walk with other people through social justice issues, through issues that they are facing physically in this world as well. Jesus has freed you from your oppressors. And so we can journey on trusting the words of Psalm 129:2. Let Israel say, they have oppressed me from my youth, but by the grace of God, they did not prevail over me. Now, we're gonna close today in just a minute after I pray by singing the words, we shall overcome. We shall overcome. I was singing this song on Friday, there's something kind of weird about me that Olivia and my kids know that I'll just start singing songs without even thinking about it that are reflective of something that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about deeply in my soul. I was thinking about this sermon and I found myself walking around the house singing, We Shall Overcome. And so I texted Joe and Joe, you know, I was like, I, don't, I think this would work well. What do you think? And he says, well, since it's Dr. King weekend, I think it'll work really well. And uh, that was just really cool to see the way the Lord did that. But we shall overcome. We shall overcome everything that we face in this world, every injustice that we have endured, we shall overcome. And that is because Christ's blood was spilled. It's because he became the suffering servant. It's because he endured, he became the oppressed to lead us in to freedom. Let me pray. Lord, this is true. We shall overcome.
by the blood of the Lamb, we shall overcome. Every injustice, every hatred, every sin upon him was laid. The furrows that dug into his flesh became the righteousness, became the power through which we are healed in every way if we trust in Christ. It is that same power that at work in Christ on the cross that will make sure all wrongs will be made right, that death will be worked backwards, that indeed we will enter into the kingdom of God. As far as the curse is found, grace will reign. So I pray that you would fill us, even now, with faith to believe that this is the true gospel. This is the true story of the whole world. And help us sing out together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.